I got to say, I'm impressed. Um, Ed nailed that reading. My goodness. I, uh, I really hesitated about whether or not to ask him to read the chapter, even though it's like the shortest chapter in 1 Samuel because of all the names and places and, and stuff like that and everything. But um, I think we can all see now why he's the lead pastor. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, we are getting close to the end of uh, 1 Samuel. We've been in this uh, for quite a while. Um, and actually, we've, uh, since even last week, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, last week, uh, Ed uh, talked to us about uh, what was going on in chapter 24, and you can see we're in chapter 27, and my math's not crazy great, but uh, I think there's a few that we skipped in between there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on uh, with David in that meantime. We're going to touch on some of it as we go about, but um, this chapter is interesting. Uh, it is, uh, I think, the shortest chapter in First Samuel, uh, but it's also interesting because of uh, not necessarily who's in it, but who's not in it. Uh, some people that we've grown accustomed to seeing, to hearing from, to seeing interact with David. And, and David draw life from them, do life with them, uh, have to live life in spite of them. Uh, we don't see Saul in this chapter. He's referenced very quickly there at the start, but Saul is seemingly missing from this chapter. Uh, as we go on, we, we see that there's no mention of Jonathan. David's family has simply mentioned that they move with him into the land of the Philistines there at Gath, but we don't see any interaction with them, which David in the previous chapters had come to rely pretty heavily on and actually been talked out of some pretty significant things by one of his wives um, of not acting too hastily and letting God work in his life. But most importantly, maybe the weirdest absence in this entire chapter is there is absolutely no mention of God. God is nowhere to be found in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. He's not talked about. He's not looked to. His opinion is not asked of. And the author is very intentional about leaving that out so that it is striking to us that the one that this entire book has seemed to be about, yes, we've talked about Saul, we've talked about Samuel, we've talked about David, we've talked about the Philistines, but behind it all, over it all, has been the entire time God directing it all. And you hear as we get towards the end of the book, the main character is nowhere to be found. It's pretty interesting because uh, of what we actually see right before what Ed read for us. That's always a good way to start, right? Let's go to something that wasn't read, uh, that we took all the time there for. But there in, verse 20, or in chapter 26, verses 23 and 25, ending up right before we get into chapter 27, David has an interaction with Saul. He actually spares Saul's life for the second time. We read a few weeks ago about David sparing his life for the first time in the cave. And there, David's interaction with Saul, actually his last interaction ever with Saul, David says to Saul, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation." And then Saul said to David, having to recognize what David's done and what's going on, Saul even, it says, blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went his way and Saul returned to his place. David, here in chapter 26, has a spiritual victory. This is a spiritual high 
for David. This is one of the greatest things, moments of accomplishment in David's life up to this point. And that, even, that is even to say with Goliath. For a second time, he has spared Saul. For a second time, he has shown that God is protecting him. God is working in his midst. God is leading his way. And what's more is he has supreme confidence in God and trusts God. That God is going to protect him. God's will is going to be done. And for David, that is the most important thing. And so as we come to chapter 27, David is coming off of this incredible spiritual victory. And up to this point in the book, David has been the picture of the Messiah that Israel has talked about, that they've longed for, that they've been waiting for, that God has promised them. He has been faithful. He has been obedient. And he has done those things even in the midst of severe trial. And he has done those things as a clear juxtaposition to who Saul is. Saul this entire time has been vindictive and governed by self-interest, but not David. And David has done all these amazing things. He's killed the giant. He's killed Philistines. He's saved Israel. And even as Saul has gone after him and threatened his life, David has spared Saul. David has protected Israel even when its own king hasn't protected it. But here in chapter 27, something changes. And the message that David's life is showing to us this morning is that anyone can forget about God. And that's a problem. Even for as great as David was, for all of the things David had seen, David here forgets about God. Forgets that God's even in the picture. Forgets to go to God and ask God what he wants David to do. If we go back there to chapter 27, verse 1, it says, Then David said in his heart, Now shall I perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. There's something here that the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see. Notice that we just had in chapter 26 this amazing thing that David has said. That I've shown faithfulness. God will show faithfulness. God will protect me. He will protect me from you, Saul. That God is going to... his. Bless the righteousness that I've shown and being obedient to him, even when it's been most difficult, even when I could solve the greatest issue in my life, that is you, Saul, twice now, but God hasn't told me to do that. And instantly the author of 1 Samuel says, and then David says all this stuff. And it's almost as if chapter 26 didn't happen. We don't know how long it's been, but the idea is that something has happened in David's life. And the important thing is, it wasn't external. See, that would make sense. That would be easily explained for us, wouldn't it? That David goes through something. That David finds himself in a situation he's never been in before. That David is uh, at a low point. That he's lost his men. That his entire family's gone. That Saul has him cornered and he has nowhere to go. Then it would make sense that David would feel this way. That I'm going to perish at the hand of Saul. That is pretty obvious. The writing's on the wall. It's there. It's going to happen. But it's clear. It's made crystal clear for us that none of that is true. 
Not a thing in the world has changed from that moment that David declared, I have complete and utter faith and trust and confidence in God to this one. The only thing that's changed is the way that David thinks. The way he sees things. And we're left guessing, wondering, well, what in the world could it be? It'd be really nice if like, we had like, an author here that inserted and was like, and this is why he felt that way. But we don't know. It could have been that he was wore down. I mean, that seems to make sense, right? He's been on the run for a while. We all get weary at times. Could be that he was lonely. David, we see time and time again, allows people, seeks people, wants people to speak into his life. And oftentimes, it's been others that have been reminding him of things and and pushing him in the right direction that remind him what he is, that he's God's anointed, that he's meant to be the king of Israel. Whatever it was, whether he was weary, he was lonely, I mean, the depression had set in, whatever it might have been, all that we know is that David no longer thinks he can rely on God. That he's in a place where he needs to figure it out for himself. There's nothing happening. Can he go on running from Saul his entire life? That seems far-fetched. And so it seems like he's caught in a cycle. And he says, you know what? The only person that's going to get me out of the cycle is me. Because when it comes down to it, I'm the only one I can trust, right? I'm the only one that's going to look out for. I'm the only one with my best interest in mind. We see David thinking so much about his situation and the dire circumstances that he finds himself in that he leaves no room for God anywhere. And this is so far from the David that we have seen, that the David we even saw when he had nothing really to go on, back with Goliath. There in chapter 17, there's so many places that I could have pulled for this from in that chapter because everywhere in that chapter, it's David reminding everybody who's actually in charge who they can trust. He says there in verses 36 and 37, he's talking to Saul here. He says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, talking about Goliath, because who else would that be, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. It is so easy for us to bank our life on past spiritual victories and then forget down the road the reason why we had those victories in the first place. To actually get to a place in our life where we can believe that we're somewhere that God isn't. That he doesn't see what's going on. He, under, he doesn't understand what we're trying to work through. That we're wrestling with questions that he doesn't want us to be asking. And so he can't possibly want to weigh in and help us figure out who we are. What stand we should take. What we should believe. How we should see the world. This was the part of the sermon um, I really wrestled with because basically there's this point and it's like there's a whole other sermon to preach here. And I was like, I can't get lost down that track. 
But there's so much here for us that we need to know and we need to be reminded of. This, this idea that is always right there at the doorstep, that especially as we find ourselves in difficult times of, of wrestling with questions of, of who we are. How do we love those around us? How do we show love but speak truth? That we think we have to figure it out for ourselves. That God isn't interested in helping us figure those out. God's waiting for us to find the right thing, find him, and then come to him once we have all the answers and have it all put together. But that's a lie that's told to us with the hopes that we will get so far down the path of our life that we'll think, you know, we're, we're too far gone at this point. There's no way for me to work my way back to God. So something that David had realized, if, if that sounds like something you're struggling with, that you're trying to figure things out in your life, and you've got to figure them out on your own, you've got to make it happen for yourself, read Psalm 139. That's a psalm that they believe that David wrote when he was being anointed as king. And in that psalm, what David talks about is, there's nowhere you can go, whether in heaven or hell, that God is not there. That even though it may feel like you're abandoned, even though it may feel like it's up to you to figure it out, even though it may feel like God wants nothing to do with the questions that you're asking, He is there with you and He wants to figure them out with you. Because He knows anyone can forget about Him and that's a problem. It's a problem because decisions that we make in our life are a lot like rivers. As we try to figure things out, as, 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 we, as we try to figure out where we are and what to do, as, as David was, was wrestling with, Saul is after me, I feel like I'm going to die. He makes a very small decision that doesn't seem like a big deal. But then we see it taking him in a direction that he never intended to go. That's what rivers do. Anytime you go to the, the, the place of a river, I, we went one time, um, I think Ed's talked about this before, so I'm stealing an illustration, I think, uh, and this is right on the spot. So um, we went one time to the Metolius River, and I think he's talked about going to the headwaters of the, the Metolius over there near uh, Sisters and Bend in that area. And uh, it sounds, it's this really cool like sounding thing, and then you get there and it's nothing. It's the most unimpressive thing ever. But if you go a little ways downstream, with any river, you get to a place where all of a sudden the current picks up and the rapids grow. And if you put yourself in there, that river will carry you off a lot further than you ever thought it would there at the headwaters. The decisions we make in our life are very much the same way. They seem insignificant. They seem small. They seem like they're not going to lead anywhere. But given time, we build upon those things. They are the building blocks of our life. And eventually, a current is built up that will take us in a place, in a direction where we cannot see possibly where it might be going at the outset. And this is why it's a big deal that we can forget about God. Because if we start making decisions about who we are, how we relate to our world, the things that we believe, how we treat people, without God in the picture, without his input, we can wind up in a place so far from where we ever imagined we could be. See, David starts with a small idea. David starts with the idea that Saul will kill him, and it takes him pretty far. We see him using, from that, from that point, some... Pretty impressive cunning and shrewdness in his life. 
He thinks that if Saul, if he goes to the land of the Philistines, Saul won't pursue him. Guess what? It works. He gets there and he meets the king of Gath, uh, this guy named uh, Kish, and, and, and he tells him, he, he says, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm here to, you know, to serve you. And it works. And then he figures out, you know what, I can't do what I need to do if I'm living here under this you know, king of the Philistines, because I'm really not a Philistine. And so he, so he throws to him this idea. He says, let me go somewhere else so you don't have to, you don't have to pay, you don't have to feed me, you don't have to feed my men. We'll, we'll kind of do our own thing. And so Akish gives him this town of Ziklag. Really cool thing is, this is a total aside. This is like a rabbit trail and a rabbit trail. Ziklag was promised to the tribes of Israel and yet never conquered. And then the author here in 1 Samuel tells us it's from this point on that it becomes a royal city. God's purposes always get worked out. That's kind of the idea. There's a third sermon in a sermon. So he goes to Ziklag, and it actually like serves this purpose for Kish because Ziklag was at the very south part of Philistia. And so he actually is this protection. David becomes this buffer for this guy. It works. David gets to do his own thing. And so what David does is he goes out and he tells Akish, hey, I'm raiding against Israel. And so Akish thinks, oh, man, this guy's like blowing it. He's burning bridges left and right. He's never going to be able to go back to his people. When in reality, the thing that David's doing is David is going and he's taking care of Israel's enemies and raiding them. It works. So the whole time that David is getting in good with Akish, he's also becoming a hero to Israel. And what we read a little bit later is a lot of the spoils that he got from those raids, he would give to the people of Judah. I mean, everything David touches here turns to gold. So maybe it seems like sometimes it's good to forget God. Maybe sometimes we can do it better than God. The only problem with everything that David does here is David's never been told to do any of it. He's actually been told to do the opposite in quite a few places. He was told by the prophet Gad to return to Judah back in chapter 22. Instead, he returns to a place he's been to Gath before where he almost died. And he ends up killing people so that they don't rat on him to Akish, that he's never been told to take up the sword against. See, the thing is, is that the reality of our world, can you go back, Steve? The reality of our world is that being right doesn't make you right. There we go. Um, I've got a story for this. Uh, many of you know that me and Hannah, it, it took us a long time to have children. Um, and uh, the thing is, is when, when you're going through fertility treatments and kind of the thing that's kind of always right there that you're trying to decide about with having kids, wanting kids, should we adopt, should we keep trying to have our own kids, uh, you, you have a lot of time just to think about everything. And if you're someone like me, not only do you have a lot of time to think about the big stuff, but you also have a lot of time to think about what jokes you would tell if you were having kids. And uh, and so by the time that we actually did get pregnant, I had a lot of material stored up, and I was ready to use it. And so um, the uh, 
the opportunity came one day uh, to use what I thought was one of my best lines. And I remember all the details because that's what happens in near-death experiences, is you remember everything about it. And so it was, it was late in the pregnancy, and uh, Hannah was in our bathroom, standing over the sink. She had really never gotten over the nausea that often happens with pregnancy. And uh, 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 it was with Eden, and the, uh, she was actually late at that point. And Hannah was just complaining how bad she felt, how everything was sore, just nothing. She didn't want to eat. She just wanted this baby out. And I just reminded her, I said, but this is what you wanted, and uh, it was not the right thing to say. Um, I mean, uh, in my defense, um, I was right. Like, it, I mean, we, we had tried for it. And we had tried uh, a lot harder than uh, most people have to. And we had talked about it a whole lot longer. And, uh, but, man, the look she gave me. Um, and then uh, I, had to, I had to go and make sure that our gun safe was locked and everything. And so... Um, I, but, and, and still, and, and then after that, like, I could tell, like, I would tell that story to people and the look she would still give me. And uh, so basically at this point, my whole, uh, my whole strategy is to just keep telling it until she finds it as funny as I find it. And so um, I was right, though. This is what she wanted. Like, that is, like, what we had tried for for so long. And I think we all know. Even though I was right, I was not right. Like, that was not the thing to say then. That was not the situation. I mean, read the room. Come on. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, there's so many examples of this in Scripture, but it, it, Abraham, uh, there's twice that, that he goes to a different land and he tells Sarah, his wife, to tell people she's his sister. And the reason he says that is if they know that you're my wife, how beautiful you are, they're going to kill me so they can take you. And the thing is, is Abraham's right. But he wasn't right. Because what he does in his deception is he actually like potentially brings ruin on so many people. And God has to step in and intervene on Abraham's behalf because Abraham wasn't willing to do the right thing even though he was right about what would happen. See, there isn't just one truth in our world. We like to talk like there is. Like there's one truth and everything else is wrong. There are multiple truths in our world. But what God wants to know is what is the most important truth to you. Yes, if you do that, people will react that way. And yes, it will cost you to take that stand. And yes, they will kill you if they find out she's your wife. All those things are true. All those things are real. But at the same time, yes, he is God, and that means he is king. And is that truth more important to your life and in your life to live out of than all the other truths that you can point to and say, we should do this thing? Just like that river starts flowing and seems innocent enough at first, let's just go to the Philistines. Saul will stop chasing us. He was right. But he wasn't right because it led David somewhere he never imagined he would go. 
Ed read for us there in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in my army. Uh-oh. David gets enlisted with the other guys. And David said to Achish, very well, you, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. I can't, I'm not sure, but it seems to me like God's anointed king of Israel shouldn't be the bodyguard for a king of Philistine. The king of Gath, right? I mean, that, that, I mean it doesn't seem like being the king of Israel is a bivocational job. Seems like it's just like, you know, hey, you do this one thing, right? Achish makes David march with him. And so David marches not just against Saul, but all of Israel out of this little city called Gath. The thing is, is this is eerily similar. We've read about something like this before. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it says, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there in verse 4 it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. David has taken Goliath's place. The very one celebrated as the savior of Israel for killing the giant has become the giant himself. Because the truth of our lives is that you need Jesus more than you want to need him. Because without him, we end up making a mess of things. We like to think in our life that we're growing, that we're progressing, that we're getting somewhere new, that we're getting beyond things, that we're becoming more mature, and that means we have things figured out. That the longer we do this, we get better. That we have a track record and we have wisdom to bank on. That we can figure things out for ourselves. We know what the right thing to do is. We've been there before. But the thing is, is how many of the conversations that we have, even in the church, are simply about what we want, what we see, what we think, and we never make any mention of God. That the longer we've been at this, a part of this, in this, the less we think we have to concern ourselves with where God is. Why? Because we've been there. We've done it. We've killed the giant. I, it's not just being a pastor is giving me insight. This. I, I, I grew up and I'm, I'm a pastor's kid. And so I, I, I've been around the church my entire life, and one of the things that struck me, it, it struck me before, and it kind of made me like not want to be in the church, and then God dragged me back to the church, is how easy it is for us in the church to have conversations where God is never mentioned. To have the conversation of chapter 27 over and over and over again. That we'll talk about our marriage, We'll talk about what's wrong with it. We'll talk about how to fix it, the books we're reading. We never ask, where's God? We'll talk about our world. We'll talk about politics. We'll talk about leaders. We'll talk about policy. We'll never ask the question, 
and say, where's God? And we'll talk about our church and what people think and what people will do, what other churches have done. But we never ask the question, where is God? We have this assumption that we all want to see the same thing. We all want to see the right thing. We all want to see God's will be done. That we're all keeping in mind that we don't have to say that because, I mean, eh, we're, all, we're all in that place. That's who we are. We know each other. But that wasn't true for David, was it? And if David can forget about God, well, we can too. The thing is, it doesn't matter how much we've gone through in our life. It doesn't matter how much experience we have. That that experience should actually remind us and show us that our need for Jesus goes a whole lot further than we want it to. That we can't figure things out the right way on our own. That actually the more mature we get, we depend on God more. That we need Jesus more every day the closer we grow to him and the further we grow into him than we did the day we first met him. We all have this reality in us where we can see God and yet there's something still between us that, that we don't have all of him. That's what David's dealing with here. He's had an entire life where he's been able to see God, have confidence in him, and yet he finds himself in a place where God isn't even there. And how is that even possible? Because David is still wrestling with what A.W. Tozer calls the self-life. He says in his book, The Pursuit of God, he said, it is not too mysterious, this opaque veil that, that separates us from God, nor is it too hard to identify. We have but to look in our own hearts and we will see it there. An enemy to our lives and an effective block to our spiritual progress. It's not a beautiful thing, and it's something that we never care to talk of. It's the sins of the self-life. But they're not something we do, they're something we are. And therein lies their subtlety and their power. He goes on to explain what these are. They're things like self-righteousness and self-pity. Self-confidence and assuredness. Self-sufficiency and self-love. And anything else that you can attach to the self of who we are and what we want to be. He says that they're so deep in us that only God can bring them to light. We can't recognize them. And that actually it's in the church where they flourish. Because they can be there as we come to the altar and we can feel like things are good. And yet we're not allowing God to shed his light on them. To die to ourselves. And to remember that our need for Jesus goes well beyond where we want it to. That there is never going to be a place or a day where we can say, this is the way I see things. And so that's right. That as we grow in Christ, our need and dependence on him grows as well. That we don't get more self-independent, we get more Christ-dependent. We must never forget that our life in Christ is a life in which we must die daily to ourselves. Not just once, but every day. And daily seek the power of the Holy Spirit to live Christ-centered lives. As he talks about this, A.W. Tozer says, this is a call. It, it sounds like we can talk about this and it sounds great that you want to you know, 
tear this veil so you can have all of God and be there with him. But he says, this is exactly where we live. This is who we are. This is the flesh of our spirit. It's our life. And so when we touch it, when we cut it, it hurts, it bleeds. It's a call to death. And he says, dying is never fun. But the life on the other side because of the resurrection of Jesus is glorious. The call to die to ourselves is a daily call. There is not a point that we can look back and we can say that was taken care of then. There's a point we can look back and we can say God has worked in my life and so I have confidence that he's going to work today. But because of who we are, because of what we are, we are called to lay down our life and take up our cross each and every day. And to understand that we will never grow out of our need for Jesus. It will only grow. If anything, I don't know if this is right, so maybe I shouldn't say it, but if anything, we don't grow, only our faith, our confidence, and our trust in Jesus does. Otherwise, just like David, we will become the very thing we swore to to destroy. We can live our entire lives for God's glory and yet find ourselves marching against him and his chosen people. Why? All because... We forgot of our great need for him and we forgot about him and we began making decisions based on what seemed good to us and what made sense, thinking that, hey, if it works, it means we're right. As we come to communion today, it is a call for each one of us to die again to ourselves, remembering what Jesus has done and knowing that in him we find everything we need and we say our need for him is great. Because our sins are great. And it's at his table we find the grace and the life that we need. And that is what our life today and every day henceforth is lived out of. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that... All we have to do is be mindful of you, to turn and ask for you to be present in our lives, and you'll be there. You are faithful. So Lord, as we prepare ourselves, as we, as we come to your table during this time, would you shine your light in our soul? And show us what's there that's ours and what isn't yours. Father, would you give us the strength to do the difficult thing, and that is to die, to die to ourselves. Father, thank you that there is no place we can go that we cannot hide from you. There is no place beyond your grace. And here, even in this time, that we can make a commitment to say we want our life to be yours. And knowing that you will be faithful, we can give it to you tomorrow and the next day and the next. 
and that you will lead us. So that rather than taking up arms against you while we think we're fighting for you, we can truly be sharing the love and the light of Jesus. And what's more is we can fulfill our purpose to know you and worship you forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.